listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty Early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee Merciful and mighty God in three persons Blessed Trinity Isaiah 6 In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The words and the song you've just heard there come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And this is where we will be spending most of our time in the study this morning. However, it is a special day, so I would just like to dedicate this study to Talia on her 20th birthday. Um, obviously, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there really is no greater gift that we can give than the Word of God, and in particular, an exposition of Isaiah, chapter 6. So, Tal, we're very proud of you. We pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you and continue to guide you into all truth as you follow him with your life. So, happy birthday from me and Sarah. Now, let's get into the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Now, Isaiah is one of these books that, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, you know it is um, one of the major prophets, and it contains so much revelation for us about the Messiah, about the nation of Israel. It's also one of the, the books that is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Let me read to you a quote by uh, an Old Testament scholar and what he has to say about Isaiah. This comes from Merrill F. Unger. He says, Isaiah is the greatest of the Hebrew prophets and orators. For, for splendor of language, brilliance of imagery, versatility and beauty of style, he is unequaled. Correctly, he has been called the Prince of Old Testament Prophets. Now, studying the book of Isaiah is also taken on new life recently due to some, some archaeological finds. Uh, just February of this year in Jerusalem, uh, the Hebrew archaeologist uh, Eliat Mazar and her team, they discovered what's now known as the Isaiah seal. This is a small bulla or a seal basically with an impression and on this seal it reads belonging to Isaiah the prophet. And this seal was also found very close to a seal that had the name of Hezekiah on it. And if you know the book of Isaiah, you know that um, Isaiah and Hezekiah worked very closely together. So this is great archaeological confirmation that, of the historicity of Isaiah, which makes what we're studying even more kind of real to us in this sense. Now, the first six chapters of the book of Isaiah, they form a sort of prologue to the entire book. So this, this kind of acts as a mini summary of everything else we find in the book. So during these first six chapters, we have the indictment against Israel, God's, God's reason for why he's angry or, or he's going to be moving into judgment with Israel. We have obviously the prophecy of the coming judgment, both the immediate one in the, in the captivity, but also looking forward to the end times. Uh, we also have a promise of restoration. 
and the future blessing in the millennial kingdom, particularly the, the place of Israel in the millennial kingdom. All of this in the first few chapters. And then obviously in chapter six, we have the final kind of conclusion to this prologue, which is this great call and commission of Isaiah. You see, so just in these few verses, we're just going to look at eight verses tonight from chapter six. We're going to be looking at a huge amount of biblical history. We're going to encounter some huge theology of God. And we're also going to make uh, some practical application from these texts. So let's look and let's read, let's read Isaiah chapter six. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that's about 740 BC, this is one of the very few historical markers you get in the book of Isaiah, outside obviously of its historical context. Um, and it's, it's very tempting as we read the Bible, we quickly read over these dates and these sorts of things. We consider them just a historical reference, but they don't have much more to say. However, I'd like to remind you at this time that every word of God is there by deliberate design, inspired by God. And these seven words here, actually have a lot for us to say. You see, King Uzziah, he was one of the best kings of Judah, really since the days of Solomon. And he had a long and distinguished career, he, which was marked by much success and innovations. Let me read to you just a small portion from Second Chronicles 26, verses 1 to 15, about the career of uh, King Uzziah. And this gives us the historical context for what we're looking at for this vision from Isaiah. So, uh, 2 Chronicles 26, and all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, so he was, a young, he was a young man when he was made king, and they made him king in place of his father Amaziah, and he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. As long as he sought the Lord God, he prospered. Now he went out and warred against the Philistines. He broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gobal and the Munites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt and he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness. He hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and fertile feeds. He loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Jael the scribe, Messiah the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. It goes on and on in this sort of a way. So we can learn a number of things from King about King Uzziah here. He sought the Lord. He was a godly king and he was a godly man. It, he defeated the Philistines in battle. He pushed them back out of Israeli territory. He built cities in their territory. He collected tributes from, from the Ammonites. His fame stretched all the way to Egypt. He built up Jerusalem, he took care of the agriculture, he had a strong military, uh, and he came up with a number of ingenious um, military defences for the holy city of Jerusalem. And it says just in, in verse 15, it says, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvellously helped until he was strong. We'll deal with what that means in a moment. So when it says the vision was in the year that such a great king died, it, it's saying a lot. You see, when a nation loses a monarch of such stature, you see this nation would be looking at an empty throne now, wondering who could fill his shoes, wondering who could do the things he was done. This would be a huge time of change, a time of unrest, and really a time where, where the, the nation of Israel is now heading into an unknown future. And with his death, Isaiah himself, who had served under him, would be uh, have good reason to be disillusioned. Yet what we see here, the vision of Isaiah is a stark reminder that although the national throne of Israel may have lost a great king this day, there is another throne that will never 
be empty, a throne upon which the Lord God of Israel sits. And this is the contrast why you have this vision starting with, with this historical marker about King Uzziah and then this first verse that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne. It's a reminder to the disillusioned people of Israel that although they've lost a great king, their nation now has an empty throne. Do not panic, there is another throne which will never be empty and upon it sits the sovereign God. Now there are a number of practical applications that we can make from this part of the verse. You see, it's all too easy, we do this all the time, it's all too easy to place our hope in a great leader. If you look around, people who obviously don't have a, a worldview that looks to some sort of God or transcendent reality, very much focused on this world, most people look to politicians, don't they? And, and as you can see, people get let down frequently by politicians and people get very intense with their love for or hatred of a particular leader if it doesn't agree with their views. We have a tendency in the Christian church sometimes to look up to those who have maybe led us in the faith or, or of our most preferred teachers or Bible, Bible preachers. We look up to them. And this is fine. We're supposed to emulate the faith of those who lead us in the Lord. That, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's a fine line between just taking example and following their lead as they follow Jesus. Sometimes though I've seen it to the stage where people's faith actually begins to depend on their leaders. You see, it, this, is, this is where it starts to get dangerous. We should always remember that the king is the one who sits on the throne in heaven. And, and on, the, on the kind of flip side of that coin, another lesson we can learn from King Uzziah, um, although he did many great things, he ended his life on a bad note. Let me just read to you the, the, the final part of that chapter in Second Chronicles and we'll see how he ended his life. It says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honour from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out. He had been smitten. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. A tragic end to a great king's life here. One moment of unfaithfulness, where pride got the better of him, and he went into the temple of God to do something that he was not commissioned to do. His power obviously got to his head and the faithful and valiant priests stood up to him and God judged him at that moment and gave him leprosy and he was cut off from his people. You see, if you had put your faith solely in King Uzziah, you would be very let down at this time. And I see this today in the church. I've heard too many stories of people's faith being shipwrecked when someone they think should know better turns out to fail. You see, if they, if they put their, all their hope and their trust in someone in the church, rather than in the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point they'll see this person fail. We pray, obviously, that this doesn't happen, but we've seen it happen. I've seen many times people become disillusioned with a church, a particular church body, as they perceive some sort of failure in its members. And obviously this happens. You know, in this instance, we mustn't lose heart. We need to remember and pray that these people are sinners just like us. We are of their number and we will fail and we will fail again. But it is the Lord Jesus who is on the throne and he will never fail. We must remember we follow Jesus, not the body. We follow the head of the body. And this is a good lesson that we can learn from King Isaiah and the beginning as we, as we get into this vision here of Isaiah. So he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isaiah saw the Lord. The word here for Lord is the term Adonai. It means Lord. It's really a name, a name of God that speaks of God as the sovereign. It has two connotations, one really being the owner and the master. And it's talking about his sovereignty as, as, as he has the right of submission because he is the one who is sovereign. And this is really what true sovereignty is talking about. True sovereignty really means the right to rule as he pleases. It does not mean divine meticulous determinism, as some people in some theological systems wrongly interpreted. It, it's speaking of his right to rule. So he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty 
and exalted. Now this is why the throne is described this way, because of the, the God is described, it's a sovereign throne, it is lofty, it's high and it's lifted up. Both of these words emphasize that it is a throne far above anything else. It is an exalted throne and one which is to be magnified in all ways, far above all else. At this point I kind of I'm reminded of the, the famous uh, worship song above all else that, that just has describes this thought beautifully let me read to you just the first couple of verses it says above all powers above all kings above all nature and all created things above all wisdom and all the ways of man you were here before the world began above all kingdoms of above all thrones above all wonders the world has ever known above all wealth and treasures of the earth there's no way to measure what you're worth. So it's an amazing worship song, and, and that's really what we're talking about, this throne being high and exalted. And again, there's a lot of application here for us. If we think about this in the context of the book of Isaiah, you see, before Isaiah was sent out to minister, to engage with this rebellious and sinful nation at this time, before he was kind of sent out into the world, the majesty, the greatness, the holiness of God was revealed to him. And he, I think he really needed to have that vision as he went out into this world. And it, this applies to us. You see, often we're going to find ourselves surrounded by situations that are not conducive to a holy living. Okay, It may be a tough family situation. It may be people around you that are hard to live with. They wind you up the wrong way. They're not holy in their lives. They're rebellious. And it's hard not to be influenced by them. It may be simply that we are just living in a rebellious and broken world and we get to see this brokenness through the media and through everything that comes into our lives. In these situations, we need also to make sure that we keep this vision of who God is fresh in our minds. And really the chief way that we do that is by pouring our hearts and our minds into the word of God and hearing what he has to say. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now let's ask a question here at this point because it's very, very interesting. How did he see the Lord? You see, this is something that we must consider. How did Isaiah see the Lord? You see, there are many verses in the Bible that teach that God is invisible and cannot be seen. Think of Exodus 33, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Uh, think of John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Yet we see Isaiah saw the Lord clearly here. And there are other places in the Old Testament where people see the Lord. I think of Je uh, Jacob in Genesis 32, where he says, I've seen God face to face. Now, the way we, we understand this, it's only when we compare this, particularly referring to the, the portion here in Isaiah, with another amazing section in the Gospel of John that references this vision that we see the true understanding of what's going on here. This is from John chapter 12, verse 39 to 41. It's pivotal to understanding this vision. You, you won't understand it fully without the revelation that we find here in the Gospel of John. So let's, let me read this to you. It says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. That's obviously the quotation from Isaiah 6. It then says this, verse 41, John 12, 41. Listen to this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now the him that is being referred to here is Jesus Christ. Okay, and John here is saying that Isaiah saw the, saw the glory when he had this vision, he quoted from Isaiah 6, and he's speaking of these things now, but he's speaking of him. You see, so referencing this vision from Isaiah 6, the Gospel of John now says that Isaiah actually saw the glory of Jesus. It identifies Jesus as Jehovah, as the Lord who is now sitting on the throne. And this is a very strong affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. It makes me think of John 17. Now, Father, glorify me. This is Jesus praying to his Father, the famous uh, prayer of Jesus in John 17. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was, but yet we know that God will not share his glory with another. Another affirmation of, of, of the glory of Jesus Christ, i.e. the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus, who is Jehovah, sitting on the throne, a clear and explicit indication of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, the next part, he saw him on a throne. Let's deal with this little verse here, this little part. It's vital to remember, this really says a lot about our universe. We have a universe where there is a throne. And it's easy to forget this as we get tied up in the situations of life. But the point of our universe is there is an occupied throne in heaven and upon it sits the sovereign ruler of the universe. And a throne, a throne, make no mistake, throne is a furniture of a king. You remember the, the description of King Solomon's throne. Uh, if you don't, let me read it to you. It's from 1 Kings 10. It says this, Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and he overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and around and a round top to the throne at its rear, and arms on each side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. This was the throne of Solomon, and it's just an amazing uh, image that we get from reading this throne. Now, interestingly, there's actually a, a real-life throne chair that is inspired by the, the throne of Solomon, and, that, and that's the, the throne chair of Denmark. It's composed not of ivory, of, of actually narwhal tusk. Narwhals are those amazing whales that have the, the kind of unicorn-esque uh, tusk on the front of them. The actual entire throne is composed of narwhal tusk. It's a pristine white and gold chair, and it's obviously, like I said, it was inspired by the throne of Solomon. The throne of Denmark is surrounded by three life-size silver lions with gold eyes, manes, and rumps, and, and they serve as its protector. Um, so we, we have seen great thrones throughout the history of this world, yet nothing will even come close to the throne that Isaiah is seeing now. You see, and this is really the difference between the, the worldviews that we have today, let's say Christianity and atheism. You see, in one, there is a universe with a throne. In the other, as far as they perceive it anyway, there is no throne. And quite often what happens is seeing no throne, they make a throne and they put themselves on it. That would be what we would call humanism man is free to exalt himself but the reality is that there is a throne in the universe and it is an occupied throne god is on the throne and it says that he saw he, he saw god sitting on the th on the throne with the train of his robe filling the temple so this was the train the train of his robe is the, is the part that would kind of hang behind the person as he walked trains signify a position and glory and splendor and the idea is that the longer the train, obviously, the more glorious and splendid the monarch is. Um, you, you might have seen, or obviously my age, I wouldn't remember, but I, I've read and seen pictures. Um, June the 3rd, 1953, uh, the, the inauguration of Queen Elizabeth II, the coronation of, of her becoming queen. Um, during this um, kind of all the fanfare and pomp, as she walked down the aisle of Westminster Abbey. Behind her trailed a robe of royal purple silk velvet. It was 18 feet long, exquisitely embroidered with wheat ears and olive branches to represent peace and prosperity, and terminating in the Queen's crown cipher on the end of this amazing train. The embroidery was designed and executed by the Royal School of Needlework, a task that took over three and a half thousand hours to complete. Six maids of honour supported the weight of this magnificent train. That was in England. That was the Queen of Queen, Queen of England. That's that's an earthly monarch. You see, in spite of these, just give us a tiny glimpse of the kind of thing we're talking about here. No monarch on earth could compare with this heavenly scene. This is the King of all kings. Is seen here sitting in his celestial palace throne room, and the train of his robe fills the entire place. And this is really signifying. The point of this is to to signify his supreme position, his power, and that he is the Almighty Sovereign. Okay, then verse 2 it says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim, these are really seraph, seraphim, the word is plural there, um, these are angelic creatures who occupy the throne room of God. Literally their name means the burning ones. Uh, and they're probably the same as the cherubim, same sorts of things, and, and we see them described here in detail with these six wings, you know, two covering their face. Most commentators note that they're probably covering their face because even the angelic creatures could not gaze upon the glory of the Lord. 
and they called out to one another with this emphatic trifold declaration of God's holiness. And this is probably the central piece of this whole scene, this declaration, this trifold declaration of God's holiness. You could say that this is actually the centre of the entire Bible. You see, no other attribute of God is referenced in such a way. We don't see them singing about it in such a way as we do about his holiness, just his holiness. We get this threefold repetition by the angels. Now, when you repeat something in the Hebrew language, that's a way of emphasizing. Okay, we see this in different parts of the Bible. Ezekiel 21, 27, uh, Ezekiel says this, A ruin, a ruin, a ruin I will make of it. And obviously he's emphasizing the, the coming destruction of, of a particular thing. But it's this threefold repetition of the language. It's a, it's a idiosyncrasy of the Hebrew language there. Now, some suggest that, that the trifold repetition of, of holy here is alluding to the Trinity. Now, that's not, I believe, it's, it's actually more the, the Hebrew language, the emphasis there that's being emphasized. However, we can't exclude that. It's not explicit, but it could be included here. Obviously, we know uh, that God is a, a triunity, so um, that does fit. And you see, there's another text that we learn about the throne room of God and there's another it's a New Testament text and it gives us another glimpse into the celestial throne room and a look at these amazing creatures that we've seen the, these living creatures um, and we also hear again this threefold declaration of God's holiness so I want to read this text now um, just because it gives us a, a fuller view a deeper revelation into what we are witnessing here this amazing scene that we're seeing in the Word of God it comes from Revelation chapter 4 I'll start reading from verse 2. It says, Immediately, this is obviously the Apostle John, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, here, listen to this part, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. An amazing scene. Again, the emphasis seems to be on God's holiness, the Hebrew word kadosh. What it means there, it really means to be consecrated, to be set apart. And in this context, it designates the opposite of anything that is common or profane. It's talking about the fact that God is utterly unique and his presence is sacred. He is set apart, he is exalted above everything, above all creation. There is an unfathomable contrast between what is divine and what is created. And I don't think we can really even grasp that, but we just, we take it because we have it revealed to us in the word of God. And this is, you could say, this is the keynote in Isaiah's vision. It seems to be the central part in understanding God's attributes. And, and I believe that, that all other attributes of God must be understood in light of his holiness. We don't get to separate them out because holiness is one thing that we often like to play down. Because holiness necessarily brings us into the issue of justice and judgment and these sorts of things. And, and our own sinfulness, as we shall see, is highlighted to us in the holiness of God. We like to emphasize his love. However, his attributes don't operate in kind of one at a time. They operate in unison with one another. Therefore, if we're talking about his love, we have to understand that it is a holy love. Okay, so therefore it will never be an excuse for sin, but it'll be a love that seeks to bring the object of that love into greater holiness too. Let me read to you a quote from uh, the book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a you know, small book, but one of the best books written on this subject. Um, let me just read to you the words of Tozer. He says this, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. And because he is holy, his attributes are holy. And that is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered, 
we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible and unattainable. He is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, goodness and incomprehensible holiness. And in all of this, he is uncreated, self-sufficient and beyond the power of human thought to conceive or human speech to utter. Beautiful description there from that book, um, chapter, The Holiness of God. Another Bible commentator, J. Vernon McGee, he applies this grand scene to our everyday lives. He, he gives us some practical application from this, and he says this, If we would see him, God that is, today, in that high and lifted up position, we would be delivered from so much low living. And it would also deliver some folk from this easy familiarity that they seem to have with Jesus. And I think this is a real lesson that we need to learn today, because too often... Um, we live our lives as if there isn't a God on the throne and he is not holy. Uh, we lower, we, we low living as, as McGee calls it here. And sometimes the very antidote to that is simply to gaze upon the holiness of God, to understand it and to dwell on it and to look at it as we see it revealed to us in the word of God. And also this will stop us from being too familiar. Now there's part of the Christian gospel is this beautiful truth that we have um, such easy access to the Father. It's, it's amazing when you understand it, but yet at the same time this must never be an excuse for easy familiarity because that forgets who God is. You see, can we encounter Jesus, this King who is high and lifted up on the throne, and then live the same way? Uh, we shouldn't be able to. Tragically sometimes we do, but ultimately our lives will be changed. You see, it can be very easy as we go on, we've been a Christian a long time, maybe the initial kind of uh, fire that we have in the early days has, has run down, we can forget the vision of God and we begin to turn our thoughts back to the troubles of the world, they, they kind of entangle us, we look for solutions in the world. It's very easy to be deceived into thinking that the pleasures of the world, so-called, um, the deceitful pleasures actually, can satisfy us. But this is really the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, that we would see God as he truly is. Let's go back to Isaiah. It says, is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here it's, it's not the term Adonai, it's the term Jehovah. This is the Hebrew, what they call the Tetragrammaton, the Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, those four Hebrew letters that make up the name of God that was revealed to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Um, the Lord God of hosts here, obviously, this is emphasizing the exalted position, but also that he is a kind of Lord host here. This is speaking of the armies of heaven. Again, it's a name that is emphasizing the sovereign and lifted up nature of God. Um, in Amos chapter 4, verse 13, we see a very good description of this name, Lord of hosts. It says, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. So again, it's emphasizing the sovereignty, the omniscience, that is the, the all-knowing nature of God and his omnipotence, that is the power of God. They're all implied by this majestic name. It goes on in the vision to say that the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory, Hebrew word kavod, it literally means weightiness or heaviness. Uh, it speaks really, it's a technical term for the manifest presence of God. We see this in the Old Testament with the Shekinah glory cloud don't we? This, this, this presence of God. You see, God's glory is essentially the profound, glowing, visible, confluent expression of the attributes of deity. That means the coming together of all of these attributes of deity, which in themselves bear witness to his incomprehensible essence. This is the best we can do to understand God in this sense. Yet, we are treated to more revelation of God. Because he has made himself known to man through revelation, obviously by his names and by his titles, by his attributes, by things we see in the world, but more importantly by his written word and finally by the living word, Jesus Christ. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Now just step back for a moment, think of the scene that we have here. 
We're in the celestial palace with the Lord of hosts, this sovereign king with the train of his robe filling the temple. He's seated on his throne. There's a rainbow around the throne. It's like an emerald. There are these amazing living creatures around him flying with their six wings, crying, holy, holy, holy. Their voice is so impressive that the foundations of this temple are shaking as they speak. There are flashes of lightning and sounds of thunder and there's this thick smoke filling the room coming from the altar. This is the throne room of God. Now in the face of such a glorious scene is it no wonder that we see Isaiah respond how he does in verse 5 let's go on and read it it says then I said woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts Isaiah responds to this magnificent vision that he's having this view of God's holiness all he can do is say woe is me now this is interesting because in chapter 5 Isaiah had previously announced six woes on the nation of Israel for, for various things rejecting the word of the Lord and going after the foreign gods and, and all the apostasy that was happening in Israel however here which is really chronologically prior to his, his ministry he first pronounces woe upon himself when he was confronted with the transcendent glory the infinite holiness of God in alarm and despair all he could do was cry woe is me you see and apart from the grace and mercy of God all we all can cry is woe is me he says I am ruined and the word there means to he's made to cease he's cut off it, it literally speaks of coming to an end of oneself in light of what he's seeing he knows there is nothing he has to offer that God it's all about God at this point and not about him and this is something that that Isaiah had to understand before he moved into ministry this was Isaiah's response to a vision of the thrice holy God he says I'm a man of unclean lips now this is interesting the prophet identifies specifically his lips and this is he probably does this because it's a it's such a contrast to the fact that he's just witnessed the seraphs using their lips to proclaim God's holiness and, and from what they're proclaiming with with their lips he knows that his lips don't live up to his now uh, the, the famous devotional my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers he, he has one of the day one of his devotions is on this verse here Isaiah 6 5 and he makes a very interesting observation let me read to you just a small snippet of it he says when I come into the very presence of God I do not realize that I am a sinner in an indefinite sense but I suddenly realize and focus and the focus of my attention is directed toward the concentration of sin in a particular area of my life a person will easily say, oh yes, I know I'm a sinner, but when he comes into the presence of God, he cannot get away with such a broad and indefinite statement. Our conviction is focused on our specific sin, and we realize, as Isaiah did, what we really are. Very insightful words here. You see, it's very easy to fall into the trap, and, and it, you know we probably have very good theology in this sense, and theologically we know that we are sinners for all, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and we know that obviously we have to confess this, and we do this in prayer, yet if we're very honest, it's easy, and I know this in my own life, our prayers and our confessions remain overly vague in the sense that forgive me for my sins, forgive me for my apathy uh, and they're, they're very broad and general categories what uh, Oswald Chambers is getting at here is that Isaiah is being very specific if we want to actually be cleansed by the Lord and confess our sins we need to be willing to get specific I said this about this particular person I thought this and this and this and it was wrong Lord I forget be very specific with our sins because these things can build up and we, we can't just kind of cover everything with one blanket I'm a sinner Lord forgive me true confession will be specific and lips are often the most dangerous things we all know this um, it says you know the book of James having this home they can spring forth fresh water a blessing and a curse at the same time they can start a fire that can't be put out this is what our lips do um, we see this don't we when we're with others the, the kind of desire we have to speak about other people the gossip these sorts of things uh, to judge other people when we look at their behavior we all fall into these sins remember Jesus Matthew 12 the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart we need to make sure that we're filling our heart with things like Isaiah saw here the vision of God you see when confronted with the Holy God he breaks down in confession at his own sin first and then he says and I live among a people of unclean lips you see it's important to notice he first identified himself as a sinner with the people you see although his message would be towards a nation when he was confronted with pure holiness 
He knew that he had been defiled by living among sinful people, as one of those sinful people. Um, it would have been very easy for him to blame them. You know, I am a sinner because I live amongst them. But he didn't do it that way around. He didn't say, I sin because they are sinning. Um, he could have done that, but he confessed his own sin before he spoke about others. And I find this very challenging and it's an important lesson for us today. It's very easy and too often we blame our sin on the fact that those around us are not living holy lives. We allow their apathy and their lack of holiness to, inf to impact our lives. We mustn't do this and it's very hard sometimes not to get caught up in this. The antidote to this is to come probably to this scripture right here and read about the holiness of God to have a vision of the holiness of God. It's all too easy. We see this in the church too, don't we? We look around and we see people falling short and we then use that as an excuse for doing the same. Or, you know, I know I'm messing up on this, but look at them, they're messing up on that. That's way worse. Look, all of this, the only people you're deceiving, we're deceiving ourselves when we do this because it's affecting our own spiritual lives. It's the kind of what Jesus said, you know, look at the speck in your, uh, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but not notice the log in your own eye? We're, we're all accountable for God for our own walks and we mustn't be influenced in that way by others and the way not to do this is to see God as he is a holy revelation of God the one that the angels are crying out holy 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 you see when Isaiah was literally undone by the vision of the king he knew all he could do was confess and we see this throughout the Bible don't we think of the apostle Peter do you remember in uh, the story in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells them where to cast the nets and where the fish will be, and th this control over nature shows the divinity of Christ. Uh, Simon Peter, he says in Luke 5, 8, it says, he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he, what did he say? He said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Once again, when true divinity was seen and acknowledged, he had to acknowledge his own sin. In, book of, in the book of Isaiah, let's go back, it says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of hosts. That's what Isaiah says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now even a glimpse of such a glorious and holy King was too much for him. He had seen the King. Now again we talked about how did he see God because this is Jesus. Revelation 19:16, and on his robe and on his thigh and this robe is probably the, the, you know, we've just talked about the train of this robe, haven't we? <laughs> it's, this is Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it says on his thigh there's a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is who Isaiah has just seen. Let's look at verse 6, Isaiah 6 verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see, Isaiah's confession of sin in the light of God's holiness is now met with the mercy of God. And we see here the, this image of one of the seraphim uh, flying forward with a burning coal taken from the altar. Um, and this is significant, you see, from the altar. You see, the altar always uh, kind of prefigures sacrifice in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Leviticus and these sorts of things. And ultimately, we know these things are pointing us towards the cross, where the ultimate sacrifice was made. You see, throughout the Bible, the altar is where sacrifice happens. It is where judgment and mercy meet where sin is burnt away by the fire of God's judgment. That's what this coal and this altar is pointing to. The coal provides atonement for Isaiah's sin. He says not only is his sin taken away, but he is actually forgiven. And what we're seeing here in Isaiah is an excellent Old Testament illustration of the principle taught to us in the New Testament in the book of 1 John 1 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see the, pic the beautiful way this is pictured now with the coal and the altar and the taking away of sin. It it's the illustration of this principle. And this is the amazing thing. You just think back for a moment on everything we've seen in this vision. This amazing throne room. But this throne room is not alone. There is an altar in this throne room. You see, and this is a blessing because the two have to go together. Imagine if there was just a throne room. All we could see was the holiness of God and then our own sin and there was no way to deal with that. But the way that we join in the chorus of the angels crying out holiness to God is by the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, by his atoning sacrifice, by the burning coal from the altar, so to speak. You see, in Christ, we now approach this throne. What does it say in Hebrews 4.16? Amazing verse. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We have access to this throne room. 
in light of all of the or everything that it is here it's unbelievable but it's all because of Jesus and then verse 8 in Isaiah he responds uh, he hears now the voice of the Lord then I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us then I said here I am send me you see only now in this point is Isaiah ready to hear from the Lord after he had been fully cleansed you see this is important God, God did not save us to make us feel better to give us really happy lives and obviously we we do in, you know we 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 encounter happiness in our lives but we also encounter sorrow and everything else that's not the point of life the reason he saved us was to equip us for service to expand his kingdom because that is what kings do you see how many of us have been frustrated when praying for direction or, or seeking guidance only to kind of get a blank stare so to speak um, and there's a principle here that we could learn if our heart is filled with unconfessed sins or vague sins that haven't been specific it may be that our ears are stopped to God's still small voice. You see, look at the pattern in Isaiah. First Isaiah saw, then he confessed, then he was cleansed, and then he heard the Lord. And that's a very specific pattern. I think we need to be careful to try and emulate that in our lives. He says, whom shall I send? And God says this, and who will go for us? God asks a question. Now, obviously, he's not you know, it's not something he doesn't know, but he's asking a question for the sake of Isaiah. He is basically looking for volunteers. You see, God wants willing, surrendered servants. It is God's plan to commit his truth to men, not angels. It is men and women he seeks to carry the office of salvation and the message of judgment to come into a lost world. And this is the thing. If we are a Christian, if we are blood-bought, redeemed people, we're involved in this task. We have orders from the king, this mighty one sitting upon this throne. You see, only when someone who has been cleansed, someone who knows the forgiveness of God, only when they understand that are they fit to serve God in this way. You see, but it's more than that. Someone who has been cleansed and forgiven desires to serve God. And that is the key point. It is a response of gratitude and love and also surrender that will lead us to action. You see, it's not so much irresistible grace in that in that systematic sense of the way that Calvinism would say, I'd like to call this motivating grace. Because of what God has done, we desire to serve him. And then Isaiah responds, doesn't he? Then I said, here I am, send me. And this is an immediate response. Immediately, Isaiah answered God's call. How could he not after everything he had just seen? And it reminds us, it reminds me anyway, of the response of the two brothers who are called by the Lord in Matthew 4. I'll read it to you, 18 to 20. And now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, it said. Again, when Jesus was in front of them, immediately they followed him. And this makes me, again, think of a famous quote by William Booth. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, did so much for those people in London uh, through the work of, of the Salvation Army. A famous quote by him, it says this. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonised heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Powerful words from William Booth, convicting words for us all in this day and age. You see, we should always aim to increase our understanding and our awareness of God's holiness because when we do that it will make us aware of our own sinfulness which in turn will make us dependent upon the cleansing grace and forgiveness that God offers which in turn will allow us to hear clearly from the Lord which will motivate us to obey the Lord with our lives and as we do this we will get an ever deepening understanding of the meaning and application of the gospel for every aspect of our lives here I am, send me. Now, what was it that created this kind of heart in Isaiah? Firstly, he had a heart that had been in the presence of God. This is so important. He had been in the presence of God, and this should be our desire now as Christians too. We want to dwell in the presence of God because 
in his presence is fullness of joy. This is the psalmist. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. You know, how he longs for the, for the dwelling places of God. And we do this when we come to him in submission and in prayer, as we search out his will and for the, in the word of God, as we fellowship with the body of Christ, those local bodies that he has established for his good purpose across the earth. Isaiah had a heart that had been in the presence of God. He had a heart that knew its own sinfulness. This vision of the holiness of God that he got when he was in his presence impacted him immensely and it showed us our own sinfulness. Now we have this too, the word of God, Jesus Christ, who has revealed the Father to us. When we compare ourselves to him, we are sinners, we know it. Isaiah had a heart that knew there was a need among the people. There was a need for God's word. We know this too. The message still needs to be proclaimed. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. He had been sanctified, cleansed, forgiven, justified. All of these terms, they all have meaning in our lives. And he had a heart that had heard God's heart to reach the nations. And we have that same heart. And we have that same uh, message from God because it's revealed to us and we have it recorded to us in the Bible. You see, this is the heart of Isaiah. And it was this event in Isaiah chapter 6 that I believe prepared him for ministry and for living in amongst the apostate nation of Israel that he was about to prophesy judgment to. It's no surprise that it was Isaiah that gives us some of the greatest revelation concerning the Messiah, the King, in the entire Old Testament. Here I am send me and the holy god the, the god who is thrice holy god he asks us today to be in service to him and the question is where is god calling us it may be that he wants us to go somewhere where we can just simply gain a deeper revelation of his holiness in preparation for future service it may be he wants us to be in a deeper relationship with with him the king it may be a summons to service to carry a message to a group to a group of people Endless are the possibilities when we are a subject of the king. But whatever it is, it starts by hearing his voice. And hearing, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We need to gain an understanding of God through the word of God, submit ourselves to him, be cleansed by him, hear from him, and then ultimately we need to obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, just for these wonderful verses of scripture. Uh, for revealing yourself to us and we pray that for all our lives lord we'll be learning uh, a deeper knowledge and understanding of you pray lord give us the spirit and the strength to obey your teaching lord god and to take your message to the world uh, we thank you for this opportunity now in jesus name amen Again, I'd just like to thank you all for listening. I really hope this uh, podcast has been a blessing to you. Uh, I'd again please ask that if you could maybe go onto iTunes and leave us a review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, that obviously gets us up in the search engines. It's easier for people to find these, these podcasts. Also, if you want to go to my website, thomasfretwell.com, you'll hear that again at the end. You can find many more resources, lots of writing, uh, blogs that I've published, articles, peer review journals, uh, these sorts of things. And also, you can look at my speaking calendar and all these sorts of things that's on the website. So once again, I'll just say happy birthday to Tal. Hope you have a blessed day and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.